Welcome back to Spiritual Directors Talking About Stuff. Today we are continuing our conversation with my friend Mary, Chris, and Crystal about race relations in America and in particular in the church. We had a great conversation. It was really long, over two hours long, so we've had to break it up over more than one episode. And if you want to go back and hear the first part, uh, find the previous episode to this one. And if, if you want to talk to us about anything that you hear on this episode or any other episode of our podcast, please reach out to us via email. Our email address is in the show notes. So we hope you enjoy this conversation with Mary, Chris, and Crystal about race. Now, back to the conversation. And Mary, can you uh, to maybe speak to, uh, I guess, kind of the, we hear a lot of terms, uh, social equity, racial uh, justice, um, and combinations of the two, equality, equity. Can you kind of uh, help us as listeners and as white people to kind of, um, I guess, help us give, uh, help give us a common language or common understanding of like what what are the terms that uh, the African-American community in America wants to hear? And it might, that's probably an oversimplified <laughs> question, um, but if you can speak to that, that would be great. Okay, yeah, so I'll, um, I wanna follow what Crystal said just a little bit. So, oh, well, um, so Chris actually, um, he said, um, he mentioned that the church he has found in his experience that the church actually ends up perpetuating racism. And so I wanted to unpack that a little bit from my very limited perspective. I'm not a pastor. I've never been like, um, you know, like a paid leader of a church. I've just been a church member. So my perspective is very limited. And I say that at the outset and acknowledge um, that hopefully in as much humility as I can summon. Um, but just as a, as a congregant and as a, um, someone who self-identifies as Christian and um, my family has moved church membership in order to try to pursue what we see as justice um, and to try to follow leaders um, who have historically been marginalized as well. So I think um, one thing, um, one answer to that question, how does the church perpetuate racism is really what Crystal, um, what she got at in unpacking that word of justice, that um, justice is um, making wrong things right. And to make a wrong thing right, you really have to acknowledge the wrong, and then you have to do something to it, right? You have to, you have to set about addressing that wrong. And I think in um, the church, at least the, the churches, small c, that I've been a member of, um, I think um, at least for white people, um, that the concept that one of those um, ways that I and people who look like me have not said about um, rectifying or following justice or rectifying the wrongs is in our perspective on blessing and privilege. And I think to a great extent, those words have become sort of merged or conflated um, that I see all these things that I have. And, and let me tell you, I have a lot. I, I'm sitting here at a podcast right now because I have a job that allows me summers off, right? I am being a parent right now. And by the, I mean, you know, like, because I have the privilege to do that because my husband and I'm married because my husband is at work. Um, so I have a lot of privilege. So I feel like I have some credibility to say this, that um, for a lot of my life, I've just thanked God for the, the blessings that I've had without acknowledging um, the privilege that is embedded in what I have just called blessing. And I think as a white person, I've had to do a lot of work kind of delineating and pulling that apart, you know, and in and, and, and a lot of congregations where I've been to whom much is given, much is expected. And I think part of that work is peeling apart those layers and saying, well, what is blessing? Okay, all good and perfect gifts come from God above, right? But what is in what is in that that actually my system, which is not a just system, has endowed me with or has enabled me to be able to walk in. So, um, and I think I'm thinking about that, um, especially in terms of, um, of where I've worked and um, in, in being with majority white bodies in fairly wealthy communities, I think blessing has looked like, you know, kind of nice cars and um, being able when I'm sick to 
to get help from the Mayo Clinic. Um, being able when, you know, my kid has um, some kind of disorder to just, you know, brainlessly being able to to get the best care for him. Um, having a really nice house, being able to put, um, to put a privacy fence all the way around it. Um, having the flexibility to stop a job that I didn't like, and I'm, this, I'm speaking from my own perspective, and, and seek a different job. Um, all of those are, um, are, I could call them blessings, but all of those have privilege really inside them. And, and as I would leave my work last year um, from a parking lot that had, you know, $45,000 vehicles in it, huge building, lots of resources. And I would drive back, back home to my community and um, which is a blue collar community. And, um, and I would say, you know, Lord, if the scale is blessing, as the white church has always defined it, my community is always going to lose. We are going to not be seen as blessed. And we are then not going to be seen as people who are endowed to speak in areas of leadership, who are, who are, are in fact, even perhaps my um, witness is not going to be given as much credibility because I'm not from somewhere that can that has sort of a resume of blessing so um you know I, none of my friends want me to have any less please don't hear me say that um and i don't want anybody else to have me less please don't hear me saying that i do want critical inquiry into what i have and how i've gotten it and how maybe an encounter in my life is calling me to relinquish some of that or calling me to put myself under different leadership. So a second way that I think that the, the uh, maybe um, I've been a um, congregate of mostly white denominations. Um, and I think maybe a second way that um, justice might be calling me or God might be calling me to walk in a more just way is um, equity. So we might sort of delineating some of this vocabulary, we, we might consider um, the call of biblical equity on kind of a spectrum from um, diversity to inclusion to equity. Um, and equity, a real simplistic way to talk about it, and this comes from some work of Matisse Haynes and um, the art of community, but the way that um, one sort of basic definition of equity is leadership, right? And we see this in Acts 5, um, when the Hellenistic widows who were the minority, they were not being treated equally, right? And what happens is that um, there are different ways to read this passage, and we could dig into those, but one thing that happens is that the, um, the majority Hebrews, right, not socially majority, but the majority in the church, they stopped their leadership and they said, we need different leaders here. And um, Greek leaders, right? The historical minority are centered and they become the leaders of that community in order to rectify some of the disparity. And to me, that's a beautiful picture in the first century church of equity because it centers historically marginalized leadership. And um, as a white person, that's what I find myself um, trying to do is to follow different leadership, like in what I read, um, in, in the churches that I attend, um, but also even now, um, I'm in a transition from, um, from my previous job into a different job. And even now, as I think about where I want to work next, um, I really want um, I want to follow different leadership than what I've historically followed. Oh, you, you know, you you mentioned how the, the mostly the white church has has used the word blessing to mean you know we've got lots of stuff, lots of material possessions. Well, when we see you know Jesus in the in the Sermon on the Mount talking about who's blessed, you know, it's the peacemakers, it's those who mourn, it's the people who are persecuted, and completely opposite of you know what 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 I always taught blessing was you know um when I was growing up I couldn't even say I was lucky my mom said you have to say you're blessed <laughs> so yeah anyway Crystal do you have anything to add well just that I really appreciated that point I think part of the work in the ministry that I've been doing in the margins is to reclaim that picture of the gospel right um so um to actually get those who are marginalized to understand that Christ came for us and to preach the good news to us and that 
blessing is really about relationship and proximity um, to him and not what you have. Um, so um, I would say um, to Maggie's question about kind of the definition and the terms, um, just personally, when I think about equality, again, it's about destroying those hierarchies. Um, so interrogating and challenging any place where you have an attitude or feelings or treatment that is different for people on any basis. Um, so based on what they have, based on what they look like, based on what gender they are, based on their family structure, and there are all types of places in all of our lives where we can see that occurring. I'll give you one sneaky way that I experience it on a regular basis. <laughs> Again, I interact a lot in intersections, so um, my life has been in the margins, but a lot of my work and my ministry has been in white-led, well-funded organizations. Um, so... I was identified as talented and gifted as an elementary school student, um, was bused from my urban school in Nashville across town to a suburban school to participate in those programs. I was a straight A student, um, followed all the rules, um, have now completed two degrees and I'm working on an MBA in leadership. And when I go in to make presentations, to speak, um, to minister, uh, still often get patted on my head and told that people are surprised by how articulate I am um, or that I present it so well um, and it is so well-meaning and well-intentioned but so patronizing that there's not an expectation when I come in with 15 years of experience with academic credentials that I will be credible and competent in my field. Um, and so literally, how do you challenge that? Like as a black person who's often the only one in the space where you're so welcomed in and you know they're so happy to have you, but wanna pat you on the head based on your presentation and your representation of the race and not based on what you actually bring to the table. Um, so for me, really practically equality would mean me being welcomed and <laughs> accepted and affirmed and validated first based on my humanity and then based on what God has given me in regard to gift and talent and what I've worked hard to also be able to accomplish and achieve without that being dismissed on my race or my gender or the fact that I'm unmarried now and that I'm a single mom. Um, there are all these ways in which we make people feel less than us. Um, so sometimes we talk about equality as everybody getting the same thing versus equity being everybody getting what they need. Um, but for me, equality is really about challenging within yourself all of the things that you have internalized, all the things that our organizations and our um, systems have internalized about who is above or who is better than others. There are studies right now that have happened in the last two years that show that more than 50% of white people still think that white people are smarter than black people. And so we'll see the conditions of black communities and what's happened of this nation as a difference in who's the smartest or who's the best at business and not a reflection of sin in our systems that comes out of, like not just is held up by, but was created by the white church. Um, so we have to have those conversations and start doing the work of disrupting um, this acceptance of difference as dysfunction or as deficiency and trouble all of the ways in our society, in our media, in our workplaces, in our communities that we perpetuate this idea that difference is dysfunction or is deficiency. Um, so those are not true. And when we use the word equality, when you all speak about equality, I think it foundationally begins at seeing everyone as equal, treating people with basic human dignity and respect and not esteeming yourself higher than anyone else and not allowing in discussions and in rooms where black people may never enter, right? <laughs> not allowing those comments, those statements to be made that would continue to perpetuate those ideas and those feelings of uh, reflect what would be a heart that is prideful and that is um, arrogant. 
um, is puffed up. Those are the things that scripture warns against. Um, so that's equality for me, seeing everyone as you, seeing everyone as God does, not making yourself better or higher based on skin or where you live or what you have. Um, and then equity is really about systems and about power, about leadership and the ability to make decisions um, and control resources. And it's the effort to um, invite others into that who have been systematically denied that in the past or by um, things that currently currently exist. Crystal, that's awesome. I'm, I keep thinking about the sermon that I heard this summer um, by a white pastor that was talking about the sin of racism which I obviously completely agree with, but the way that he went about it, I just, um, I'd love to like get your opinion on it because I'm very sure that uh, well-meaning, but came across very badly. Um, and the church that uh, where this pastor is, is, is very diverse, um, mostly rich white people, but also there's quite, a, like there's a lot of, it's very diverse, but, um, but it still is Metro Atlanta. There's still a lot of w rich white people that fund this church, but, um, he was talking about racism and uh, specifically going back to, you mentioned going back to the garden, uh, earlier, and he was talking about, we go back to the garden and we all have, a, uh, the same mother, it's all Eve. And so therefore we're, we're one family. And he actually said diversity we need to stop thinking about things in terms of diversity. He said, diversity is bad because diversity divides and we want to be unified. And I was like horrified by that. Um, and I, I, I know what he was trying to say, but it was horribly offensive. And I thought so. And, um, and I could even see, this is the question that I have for you in addition to my other venting, but he, there was so many um, of the black attendees that were like cheering and like, yes, we're one race, like, you know, and uh, um, so can you speak to that? <laughs> so I saw your, all of your eyes go wide when I said that diversity is bad because it is divisive, so. Yeah, interesting discussion, um, I think <laughs> happens a lot. Um, diversity is not bad, diversity is just diversity. Um, so we are endowed by our creator with diverse appearances, with diverse talents and gifts. Um, so again, I keep referencing this, like we're one to another, um, all human and all equal, but because of what has happened historically, right? And the sin of racism being built into our systems, connected to greed and connected to a desire to hoard resources and to hold on to power, um, our experiences in navigating this country um, are radically different. So are the same. We're created by God in order to all be a reflection of his image in the earth all created to walk in dominion and with authority. Um, all should have the ability to take care of our families and to live outside of the burden of oppression, right? Um, but that's not everyone's historical experience. And so to deny what is my reality as a black person living in this country, as a woman living in this country, as a marginalized person living in this country is an erasure of who I am. So I need you to see me without placing me beneath you on that hierarchy, but while acknowledging what have been the challenges that have come out of that experiences, but also what are the strengths and what are the blessings that come along with that journey for me and with my family and out of my community. Um, so not patronizing, not feeling sorry for, not thinking that I'm less than, seeing my equality, but recognizing the systems that exist in our country that make my experience radically different from yours. As a Black person, when a police offer is behind me, I cannot describe for you the terror that I feel. Um, White people, from what I understand and even experience now, don't feel that in the same ways. 
um, see police officers as protectors and they are, so please don't mishear me for those of you who are listening, um, but it's a collective experience <laughs> of a shared community to see and to have a feeling, right? Like it's not even something that you can cognitively describe. It's deeper than that of terror that is passed down within our communities. Um, so I have that burden that you would not have and it doesn't make me less than and I don't want your pity, but I do want you to experience um, or to have some empathy towards what that, what that means for me and for other people who look like me. Um, so we can talk about empathy, right, in the same conversation that we're talking about equality. And um, for me, the statement of that pastor and really that attitude is like, hey, we're all the same. And hey, we're past all of that civil rights stuff. And we had a Black president. Like, what are those people complaining about is a denial of what continues to be systematic injustice and disparity that we can attack together, right? Like we invite you into reconciliation and into justice work and into making those things right, but you can't do that. And in addition to erasing my experience, absolve yourself of any responsibility to do anything to change that when you make those statements. So I get that pastorally, right? Like I have been in church leadership. I understand the pressures that are there when you're giving goes down and your attendance goes down and you risk people losing your church or losing your position if you shake the trees too much, right? If you make people too uncomfortable. So it is such a comfortable statement to, you know, say kumbaya and everybody's together and we're all united. Um, but that's not the conversation we need in this country right now. Um, we don't want people comfortable. We need to be uncomfortable together because there won't be change until everybody's uncomfortable. Right? <laughs> like there's no reason to change anything. I was in um, a board meeting for an organization a couple of months ago. And so we were bringing up at the board meeting, um, the two people of color representing probably 10% of those who are served by this organization who would be people of color, the need to change and to make things more equitable. So um, the minorities in the organization at the client level, um, at the board level, were really uncomfortable by some of the discussions and by the lack of attention that the organization was paying to the specific needs of that group. There was another board member, um, white, male, relatively wealthy, who openly challenged while we were even having the conversation because the majority was fine. So if the majority is fine, why would we need to talk about who are these distractors who are disturbing the peace with their complaints? And so the board moved on from the conversation because the majority is fine. Um, so in our country and in that congregation, right, the majority is fine. Um, why are y'all raising all of this noise? Why are y'all protesting? Why are y'all acting like there's an issue when I don't see any issues and nobody around me sees any issues? We're all fine. And why would we care about the minority? And my only answer to that is, like, you don't have to, but God does. And if you are gonna operate in his name, right, and bear his image, um, and be led by his spirit, then it should compel your heart to care about the minority too. Um, so I get that with the pastor. It probably made trustees really happy and um, made everybody comfortable because he's saying something about it. And it's a great message that we're all equal, but we need to be uncomfortable enough to challenge the places, the places where we're not. Um, I heard once in one of my classes about um, just how American Christianity has uh, how it was formed and it started, you know, as kind of like a shallow way to control people so that people didn't, you know, deep nationality and but shallow like theology and then it morphed into uh, um, the gospel being the avoidance of pain and avoiding being uncomfortable and uh, um, and I am hoping that that Americans now I mean really worldwide but just in our context in America that people are wanting to uh, are are more willing to step into that uncomfortable uncomfortability like you mentioned um and that because the gospel isn't found in avoiding pain 
it, that to me, again, you're going back to an understanding of who our Savior is, right? Like everything about Jesus was disruptive. He came breaking all of the rules, making all the religious folks mad, disturbing all of the systems, um, and just stepped into that space. So what does it mean to us to be like Christ? Um, so to not just have them and not just get saved and go to heaven one day, right? Like, what does it mean for us to step into those tensions, not step into them, to create them um, and to disrupt the things that need to be disrupted in order for people, all people, to have the opportunity to live the abundant life as promised, right? Um, so kingdom is not just when we go to heaven. That's another thing that you hear in black church, right? We may never get justice here, but one day we're gonna walk the streets of gold. Um, I really think that kingdom begins now and kingdom is within us. And so, you know, God this is stepping out of heaven to fix our systems. Like we created the problem <laughs> and he's given us the dominion and the authority um, to fix it. And so, we have the opportunity to make wrong right, but it takes courage and it takes sacrifice and it takes those other things that if you really look at scripture, um, Christians are, are called to be. Yeah, the, uh, you know, the passage from Isaiah that you mentioned earlier that Jesus stood up and read in the temple. I, I had a conversation with my former spiritual director who was a priest at one of the local churches that we no longer go to, but I said, this is what, you know, this is what the church, church's mission should be, and he said, no, Christopher, you're getting this mixed up with, the, from, you're confusing what the church's mission is with what Jesus's mission was, and I was like, what, um, we are not, are we not the hands and feet of Christ in the world now, and, um, you know, and his idea of what the church's mission is, is simply to worship, and out of which, will flow, you know, all these benefits, which we're not seeing. I thought you were going to say the mission is to make disciples, because that drives me nuts, right? Like the mission of there's, the church is to make other people like us. Yeah, like, there's let's that too. Create empire, yeah. right? Like, no, that's, <laughs> that's not it. So I agree with you completely. It really is to be in the hands of feet of Jesus. And he said that greater will we do, right? Like that's kingdom thinking. Um, when we walk in confidence and boldness, that we won't just do what he did but that we have the opportunity right and the empowerment of the holy spirit to do even greater than what he did um so he tells a parable i think mary you mentioned earlier the samaritan who's on the side of the road and you know eventually someone stops to help like we can fix the road like we can make it so that no one is there in poverty and beat up like we can put lights on the road and we can build um businesses and companies and opportunities for people to have jobs and work to be able to make a living and we can create some equitable practices and we can put some community members out there to police the road so that no one is beaten up and left alone right like we can do greater than what Jesus described and so that's what I want to hear in conversation um, we need to acknowledge and to look towards what has happened and what was established historically in our nation, but what what are we envisioning? Like, what are we looking toward as what could be? And how do we come into agreement as different members of the body in Christ to move in the direction of what could be, of what the kingdom could look like? Um, coming from that conversation about being uncomfortable and to being courageous and uh, stepping into uh, um, this desire to uh, see the kingdom of God. Uh, Mary, can you talk a little bit about like what you've been learning um, in your own journey and being a part of the, the fight, if that's even an appropriate word to use? <laughs> Yeah, I think fight is an appropriate word. And um, I had mentioned this earlier, I think in one of our um, other conversations about what um, Austin Channing Brown, where she says um, that her exhortation for us is um, for white people to really move from the role of ally to accomplice. And um, I've kind of taken that to heart. And um, I like that because I think accomplice really costs me something, right? It costs me um, some privilege, right? Or to use my privilege to um, speak um, 
potentially, um, I think Cornell West says, you know, someone doesn't have to be in the room for me to care about how they feel. And um, I think I've been in a lot of rooms where they're marginalized, people have not been representative. So I have to, I, I, I feel the call of the spirit to say, you know, maybe we could look at this from a different perspective. Um, I did that a lot in my classroom this past year. Um, so I think the role of accomplice, um, I like that better because it it does challenge me a little bit. But this this might hurt. Like this might be uncomfortable to, um, you know, at some point be um, in um, a scenario or be in a um, social context where I'm not the majority, whether that's um, being white or whether that's being a female or um, whatever that means. Um, but I think that's kind of the call, you know? I think that's kind of the call. Um, if I'm gonna follow somebody like Christ, um, there was, I, I don't see much comfort in his life. I don't see him um, as the gospels tell of his walk in this world. I don't see much um, pursuing Unfortunately, a lot of what I end up pursuing, my comfort, um, my own sort of name and um, things like that. I, I see a very different lifestyle of his. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of kind of what I'm, I'm thinking about in terms of courage and in terms of following Christ in this. Um, I wanna, can I switch and kind of talk about something else a little bit now? Um, so this is more along the lines of uh, sort of the church. Um, but I was reading, I was doing a little bit of reading this morning and um, there's this, um, well, it was a study sponsored by Baylor in November of 2020, but researchers were from Duke and Baylor and the University of um, Illinois in Chicago. And um, they found out that multi, um, multi-racial congregations, which is defined by um, um, that there's not one um, racial group that is 80% of the congregation, right? So that, multiracial congregations have nearly tripled um, in um, like, I think it's since, um, since 1988 to 2018. So the study was done, uh, completed in 20. So like over about 10 years, um, that, that, um, that ratio or that amount has tripled, right? And I, I think though, as a white Christian, I still sort of have residual questions about what's the conversation afoot in these multi-ethnic converse, uh, these multi-ethnic congregations. And I think, um, Maggie, your example of, of, well, we must be doing something right, right? And um, we don't wanna, um, we don't want to um, kind of topple the boat here. And we don't wanna, you know, stir the pot or kind of make our system fall apart. Um, it's been doing, it's been serving us pretty well. And that's just so historically been the perspective of the um, predominantly white evangelical church, politically speaking, racially speaking. And, um, and I think now we do have this moment, which I mean, that, that statistic really does kind of excite me and it makes me happy that there are um, more of us as Christians who are worshiping in multi-ethnic and multi-racial bodies. Um, but I think as a white person, as someone who identifies with the majority in a lot of, or would in a lot of those bodies, um, I really have to sort of learn to listen. And I think that is primary as we move into these um, into these more diverse bodies that people like me who have frequently had voice and maybe been elevated because I'm educated and I'm um, middle class and, um, and I'm white, um, for me to learn, as Crystal said, from other people's perspectives. Um, I think that's what we see in Acts, in Acts 5. Um, and I think um, that's what I, that's sort of how I see my courage needing to be activated um, in sitting, sort of sitting back and collecting myself and listening to other leaders. Um, and now I want to say like one thing that that requires. <laughs> um, so I think as a white person, that requires a little bit of sadness on my part. Um, Remember when um, we first came home with my son, Leo, who was black, and um, 
I was reading a ton of books. I was reading a ton about race in America, but I was also reading just a ton about adoption and what it, what it means and attachment and things like that. And I remember so many good hearted people looking at me and trying to reassure me and saying, it's really just love, Mary. It's really just love. And I don't want to dispense with the importance of love and the primacy of love in any relationship, but it, it's not just love. And in the church, it's not just prayer and it's not just my personal devotion to Christ. There is a larger body and like it or not, I'm not at the center of it. Um, so my personal devotion is not going to mean that my church is great. And my personal, take it to the adoption paradigm, my personal hope for my son is not going to ensure that that adoption is seamless either. I really have to do some work. And um, so when I say sadness for white people, I think that um, um, I see this in Nehemiah 5. Chris Battle talked about the Nehemiah Commission and um and, um, or it's not me, uh, he talked about Nehemiah 5, but this isn't from Nehemiah 1 and 2. And um, I think when Nehemiah learned about the um, sort of raising of Jerusalem, he grieved and he grieved um, and he, he repented. And he, he was not the one, he wasn't part of that um, generation of people who sinned against God, but he took the first person and he said, my dis, my um, ancestors and I have sinned against you, God. And he owned that, right? I can't sit here in 2021 and say, but I didn't own slaves. I have to own it. I have to own my inheritance of a system that continues to benefit me and benefit my husband and benefit our family's welfare. I have to own that responsibility. And I'm following Nehemiah and saying that, this is hard and this is, this is heavy and I have to own it and I have to take responsibility for that. Um, so I frequently encourage the people who I teach, which are mostly white people about um, racial justice, um, that lament is um, key. And um, that's in, in the Psalms. Um, and there are lots of great books about it like Prophetic Lament um, by Ra. Um, and I think that that's a crucial first step for, at least it has been for me as a white person, um, because so much of, of my questions when I see a problem are, what am I supposed to do? How can I fix it, right? And um, I think that I have to sort of sit back, listen, and then I have like the soul searching that I have to do in my prayer closet has to be, some, has to be tinged with some sadness. Um, I may add just a quick discussion of intersectionality and the opportunity that I see for Christians, right, for the church, for kingdom thinkers, for kingdom leaders to make that our first identity and the one that we lived out most authentically. Um, so as a Black person <laughs> entering white spaces, even having these conversations, um, I recognize the limits in terms of how I would be perceived or whether I have to say would be listened to because it's coming from an outsider. Um, so there are cognitive biases where you trust and listen to and are closest to the people who look like you or who are already in your circles. Um, so even when um, sharing personal experience or sharing researched information, um, there's an opportunity um, that I think is often unconscious to dismiss or to minimize um, what I would bring to the table from a disempowered position. And it happens um, as a person of color, it happens as a woman. Um, so it's easy for others to talk over whatever that perspective is out of their own experiences. Um, so I may differ from Austin Channing Brown in the call to move from ally to accomplice because I want people to actually use privilege that I don't have um, to actively confront these things and to do so in leading those conversations in spaces where I may not have any access. And even if I do, um, I won't have the same power um, and have the same space as others may in the room. Um, so it is a part of my experience, right, from the margins to have to learn how to occupy space, right, how to 
occupy my voice and say things. If it means I have to say it four times before it's heard, if it means I have to confront those who are talking over me or who are dismissing what I have to say, um, it's been a learning experience for me over time to figure out how to do that and to recognize when I'm not going to be welcomed into a space and my voice and my experience and my expertise will be better utilized in a space where it will be welcome. Um, so use the privilege that you have to challenge this in places where you will be heard, where you will be um, welcome, or you um, have the opportunity to, to speak back to this. Um, I think part of what that will require, and I talked about intersectionality, is an identification with me as a Christian and as a brother and sister, um, as a kingdom person over right, what may be different in terms of race or what may be different in terms of gender. If you see yourself as a white person, first and foremost, you probably heard lots of this, this conversation that kind of bristled you, um, that may have provoked a defensive response, that would be understanding, right? You want to defend yourself, you want to defend your family and your ancestors who didn't do these bad things, who don't think like this. Um, so if you are listening as a white person, if we're talking about gender and you're listening first as a male person, then it would be natural for the response to be one of defensiveness whenever these topics are brought up. If you listen as a kingdom person, right? If you listen with a person who has a heart for the poor and a heart for the oppressed, or who wants to do the work to continue and expand the work that Jesus calls us to in scripture, then you're not offended by those things, right? Like you identify with those who are in those positions in ways that you also wanna see change. And so you're not doing me a favor and in stepping into that. You're answering your Christ call, right? You're being compelled by your conscience. It's not, you feel sorry for the black people or you hear what they have to say. No, you're identifying with me um, as a person who has experienced the love of Christ and who is now moved by it to fix the things that are wrong in our nation and in our world. Um, so that's, that's what I want to see happening. I think that's the power that we would have in moving towards kingdom thinking is we are now known by, right? We're associating with and we're defining ourselves and our identities first and foremost out of our relationship with Christ, right? Loving him first, above anything else, and then loving and caring for our brothers and sisters, our neighbors. And so if we're doing that first, right, and that trumps everything else that we may identify with, then it leads us to make decisions in cross-cultural situations or where issues of discrimination or injustice or oppression may be happening or may be discussed in ways that could be transformative in the life of another believer. So step past accomplice. We wanna be the accomplices to your work <laughs> to dismantle these things that are created and perpetuated in rooms and in golf courses and around Thanksgiving dinner tables where no person of color even has access. Um, so let us resource you, let us pray for you, let us, you know what I'm saying, speak to and give you language around it, but we, we aren't in the rooms that are actually going to change where this happened. We aren't yet in the rooms where decisions are made, and if we're there, a lot of times our presence is tokenized, so we should just be happy that we're there, right? We don't have the power to actually change these things, and that's changing on a national front, um, and it's changing because other people are inviting people into the spaces and making sure that that space and that their voices are protected when they come in. Um, so we can't do that work alone. Um, the body and the kingdom, we have to commit to doing it, to doing it together. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Um, I, I think I have, I have a, a personal experience with lament, which I think I know that it's, you know, is only the work of the spirit in my heart over the last decade or so. And, um, I grew up in South Louisiana in a suburb of New Orleans and right on the Mississippi River, basically. And, you know, during, during the years of slavery, there was plantations all up and down that river. It was like, you know, one right after another on both sides. I used to go as an elementary school student to these places for field trips. And, um, you know, it was always, the tours were always centered around the, the 
white family's life and what they did in that, you know, was a life of luxury. And, and then side mention was made, oh, and this is where the slaves lived and this is where, this is what they did. And, um, but now, um, you know, I went back to my, to visit my grandmother a, a month or two ago, and I visited one of these, these plantations, which is, you know, nothing more than slave labor camp. And this one particular one um, highlighted the life of, of the enslaved people that lived there and didn't even talk about the, the white family that lived there. Um, and there was a exhibit there on the site that talked about how like, I think it was, was over about a 50 year period from about 1830 to 1880, like 2,500 children in that particular county or parish in Louisiana died on the on these slave labor camps and I just broke down and wept you know as I read this and, and around the perimeter of this whole particular uh, exhibit was names of those children you know and many of them didn't even have names um, if it was a name it was just a first name otherwise it was just you know child of you know whatever and 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 that, you know, that really, really hurt my heart. And this was just right in the same county I grew up in. I didn't even know this particular one existed. But um, yeah, so, and then I went back to my aunt's house where I was staying, told her about it and, you know, got the typical, well, you know, those people need to, like people need to just get over it. Slavery has been gone for a long time. And, and I just had to, I said, aunt, you know, I, I said, just, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, this is like a 400 yard dash and white people have started at, at yard 375 and black people are just starting. And, you know, how can you say this is the same, you know, that we have the same, you know, opportunities. And, but anyway, just the, the fact of, of seeing that, that exhibit there of, of all the children just broke my heart, which I would not have, I would not have felt that way 10 years ago. I probably wouldn't have even visited that particular place. So Chris, I want to follow what you were saying. Um, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing that. Um, I think that um, story is an excellent example. It's more than that because it's real. It's your life. Um, but it is an excellent example of what I am talking about when I say you have to center different stories. That kind of story is what I want to center. So I, I said that I talk about, I, um, in my work, I educate um, a lot of white people or a lot of the people I educate are white people. And so I end up having conversations on social media and I was having com a conversation with a friend, um, a white man about my age. And um, he ended up talking about hard things in his life. And he said, you know, I, um, I know that you talk about um, that you stand for racial justice and that you um, are always bringing up um, perspectives of historically marginalized voices, he said, but I have had pain in my own life um, and it's real. And I, I think that um, the lament, right, that aspect, so Chris, you gave an excellent example of lament that is even beyond your own experience, but now it's part of your experience, right? Now you can't go back, right? Because that would be dishonesty. Um, but I think that those of us who haven't been to that plantation or those of us who haven't known the kind of pain um, that I have only read about, you know, in Beloved, um, like we have, we are given suffering in our own lives as a kind of activation point, right? Um, because suffering is an important part of our work as Christians, not to solve it, not to get over it, but to inhabit it and to carry it forward. And so um, I remember when I was sitting in one of these classes and um, my friend, co-leader, um, she said, Mary, I think that that part of your um, desire for justice comes from your life with your brother. So I grew up with a multiply handicapped brother who couldn't walk or talk. And, um, and I think it does. I think that we, now I have to understand that yes, I have suffered by 
virtue of being of having a brother who's handicapped um, and I um, have seen his suffering and I carry that forward. I also have to understand the limitations of that story as well, right? As I'm trying to understand the suffering in my community, the suffering of other human beings. Um, but I do think that the suffering that we carry forward is an impetus, right? It's an impetus to the life of Christ. It's an impetus to walk more in his image. And um, so I, I think that's that was the conversation that I wanna have with my friend who also was, I'm trying to talk to me on social media about his suffering. Like if we, so as a white person, I think I'm taught a lot to center my credentials and my knowledge and my education and, and what I am. When maybe the call from Christ is kind of to center where I've hurt and, um, and where I've grieved and um, where I've seen pain. And um, I think that that's what you're really doing and sharing that, Chris, and I appreciate you're doing that. Thank you. Um, it's the path of descent that Richard Rohr talks a lot about, path of descent. Crystal, you're talking about uh, being like the, just some tokenism. And so I know that there have been a lot of conversations about not having that, but also wanting to represent the congregation by having people of color um, sing on our stage the people that are on stage are incredible. And, and I know that at first it was like, oh, good, we're going to represent, uh, you know, so that the people in the audience can see themselves on stage. But that's where it ends, because then the pastor comes up and speaks, and or the guest pastor, and they're all middle-aged white men. So how do we move from tokenism? I don't know, do you see any benefits of starting there, of wanting to bring in voices to help represent and it not, but how do you avoid it feeling like tokenism, I guess is my question. I don't have a quick answer for that, Maggie. I think that that has seemed like the easiest solution, right? Like we can avoid any threat or any accusation of racism if we invite in some black people or some minorities and they seem happy to be here. And even better if we can get them up on the stage. <laughs> and so there's not a lot of change in the organization in the churches to shift towards what it would mean to meet the needs of people with different experiences and with different community ties. And so part of the minority experience in this country is having to navigate white spaces, right? Like we learned to code switch and we learned um, the different expectations of behavior and the different rules in any institution, including the church, to survive. Um, so inviting minorities into those spaces without changing the structures of those spaces or having these types of conversations as a prerequisite is actually traumatizing to the individuals who come in. And Mary, you quoted a statistic that went through 2018. I think that the research is going to bear itself out in the next three years. Um, that the people who have done that historically and have gone into white spaces with the goal of helping to do this work and help make them multicultural and have these conversations are leaving um, in mass because of the refusal of the structures to actually change. And because they are not meeting the needs or acknowledging the experiences or providing the types of psychological and spiritual support that helps people of color navigate the reality of living and existing in this country. Um, so it seems good, but it's not ministry to those who are often being used on those platforms. Um, so it's great to be welcoming, it's great to be inclusive, but doing that well means also being reflective and putting in place the types of support that would be necessary for people to not just survive, but to thrive and to feel truly seen and acknowledged and heard and equal in those spaces. Um, so I think it's, it goes hand in hand and it can't just be an inviting in of people of color. 
I would love for every white person in this country to get an experience of being a minority. Um, so I don't know how many white people have gone into black spaces or um, Latino spaces and just get the experience of figuring out if you can make it and if you can navigate. It is a skill set to be able to do that cross-culturally, but the burden and the impetus to do that is typically placed on the person who doesn't have the power or the resources. Um, so think about how to reverse that and um, how to share experiences, but that may mean you not just inviting people in to be like you, but you being willing to go and to see what it is to be like them. Um, when we talk about the big C church in America, I think that we don't mean the big C church. Um, the church is global um, and white people are not the majority in the big C church. Um, heaven will not be segregated. There are no suburbs in the kingdom of God. Um, and so there's also you know, a warning that you're missing out on the full picture of what the kingdom is currently, what the church is currently, if you are only worshiping and hearing sermons from and um, hearing songs written by or experiencing and doing life with, sharing meals with, a very small percentage of what the church actually is. Um, so stepping outside of those walls and out of Sunday morning experiences and connecting with people beyond that, um, again, outside of comfort zones because our biases tell us to stick in our kind of corner in our niche in our own communities, but being intentional about doing that makes us all better. Like it'll make you better if you're willing to, to take the risk to go to dinner with a coworker who does not <laughs> look like you and that's Big C Church. So it's not happening on Sunday morning as a person who has found safe space in black churches where, you know, there wasn't a burden to always be talking about race. Like, I just want to love Jesus and love another person. Like, I don't, I don't want to have to think about that. I think that there is some, some safety and some logical, you know, stuff that comes along with it, especially if you're going into church is your communities in our country is still largely segregated. Um, so I think we've got some more work to do as a society um, that will reflect some difference in our churches just based on integrating communities. Um, but at this point, I don't know that it's psychologically safe to keep moving in that direction until we have some of these conversations um, and until people are willing to, to actually change. I'm going to follow Crystal just to um, support the point that you made. Um, so I'm reading from that same um, research project that I quoted earlier. Um, this is Michael O. Emerson. He's a PhD professor at um, University of Illinois in Chicago. Um, he, um, he was making a comment on the research and he said that the path to diversity, the diversity that actually has been accomplished in the growth, the tripling of multi-ethnic churches up until 2018, um, that that move has almost exclusively been a one-way street, that it's been people of color joining white congregations. And then um, Crystal is absolutely right. And I'm not just justifying your, but I'm just giving some statistics to support that um, in that a lot of that, that an exodus has subsequently occurred in the wake of George Floyd, in the wake of the atrocities that we've seen in 2018 um, at the hands of uh, police. Um, so now we have like Jamar Tisby leading the um, Leave Loud um, sort of um, movement to not just go quietly, but to make um, one's voice known as to why um, people of color are choosing to leave uh, predominantly white congregations. So just sort of to, to I'm following what you were sort of getting at there, um, Crystal. Um, and so one other thing, so I think originally Maggie, you had said, what would you like the white, the large C church to know. And I think I have two things. Um, so one of them is, I'm just um, reiterating what Chris said earlier, that um, he said, I need white Christians to start recognizing that just worshiping together and praying together is not enough, right? Um, 100%, that's it right there. I think we have a low bar, at, because that doesn't disturb my life. I can do that on Sunday and then I can come home to my house um, and my, which I have privacy fence and, um, and, and doing my job and driving my car and um, sending my kids to the school that I choose that doesn't disturb my life. And I think that Christ calls me 
to like disturb my life. Um, one sort of justification as to why I'm highlighting that is what I want the church to know. Emerson also says, until congregations confront the historic structures that keep racial groups divided, and when we talk about that, we get back to what Chris Battle was saying, the institutions that are in place that have historically segregated us as human beings, until we confront those historic structures that keep racial groups divided, diversity inside congregations may function mainly as a superficial performance, and that really resonates with your question, Maggie. This is a performance, right? Rather than an integration and leadership is changing and I want to hear your voice because I've heard, I, I make my voice known. I walk into a room and people want to hear to a certain extent what I'm saying because I'm credible and I have the credentials. So um, I, I think I'm holding space, I think becomes sort of my posture as a white person. Um, so that's one thing. And then just the second thing that I would like the church to know, and I'm following you, Maggie, um, say something bad, white people. Like I, I, you said, you said, I'm afraid I'm going to say something bad. You got to say it. So when I was in, um, after I graduated from college, I went to Peru. I told you I became a Christian in college. And answer called ministry my senior year as well, Crystal. And um, so I went to Peru for mission work. And I remember one of the missionaries there saying, um, um, you will learn Spanish faster here if you just don't worry about messing up and you just kind of dive in and try to do it. I'm not saying um, sort of heedlessly and I'm not saying regardless of all circumstances, but um, I am saying that practice, and this is a practice, just like prayer, just like devotion, um, the work of justice is a practice. And to practice implies mistakes, right? And, um, and I think that's what we have to do. Like I, I say all kinds of things that I have to apologize for daily. <laughs> and just sent a text this morning. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry about that. You know, so I mean, um, you know, I think we've got to, we, we white people, we have to sort of get used to saying something bad. Yeah, I, I think that's um, probably our um, white people's tendency to want perfectionism for ourselves. And, you know, so let me, you know, let me figure out exactly what I need to say before it ever comes out of my mouth, you know, and, and I'm generally that way anyway on, you know, I try not to speak before I think about things, but um, yeah, I think that idea of perfectionism, we just need to chuck it. But, um, and so, and, and just lean into the discomfort that, um, and take the invitation to, you know, to step outside of our white-centered worlds and, and be the minority. And that's going to take, it's going to be just uncomfortable, but that is the path of, um, you know, transformation. Um, oh. I, to add, I do a lot of work um, with young people, um, feel called to what I call the next generation of kingdom thinkers. So like worst case scenario, everyone who thinks like this will die in the wilderness and then we can take the next generation into the promised land. Um, but our kids get it. And I think we see some generational difference um, that parents, grandparents who are listening to the podcast like should give you pause. Um, so you have a generation with X and now Y and then Gen Next um, after them that see the hypocrisy of the church and when the church is refusing to step into these issues and not confront and not give guidance around um, injustice and oppression and um, difference, then you have young people of all races in the city cities saying we are leaving loud and we're not just leaving the local church, but we're leaving this whole Christian thing. Um, and so um, part of the work that we've been doing in ministry is saying don't, you know, and even if you're not seeing it in a local congregation or can't find a space for yourself there, not just as a person of color, but as a person who cares about these issues, there's a place in the kingdom of God for you. Um, so I think one of the questions that we propose is what keeps you up at night about this? And one of the things that keeps me up is how do we gather together um, like-minded Christians, especially young people, young adults who no longer see a place for themselves in the church because of the refusal 
to step into what I believe is a Christ calling around justice. And so um, I see a call to action around that. Um, people are wondering, like, how do you keep young people and young adults in church congregations and think it's just about children's ministry and it's just about um, having the snazziest concert feel and dimming the lights and making it a performance and entertainment and kids Young people, young adults don't want any of that. They want practical solutions and transformation in the church taking its place at leading the change that's required in our nation and we'll lose them if the church does not step into and is not willing to do that. So um, I see it happening around our community and now around the country since I've visited so many places where you have congregations that and churches, right, that are decaying <laughs> and um, are dying. Um, and it's a lack of ability to be relevant and to step into and transformative in this moment. Um, so it's not just a moral imperative, right? In some places, right? The survival of your congregation, the longevity and the ability to be relevant in this generation is gonna require you to have an answer and for you to be willing to say, even if we don't have the answer, we wanna be a part of of leading an answer and leading change.